0: Constellation, Episode 1 Artist and Dealer Ten minutes before the Eurostar train pulls into Brussels' Midi station, a man with a blue turban and a florid grey moustache gets up from his seat and shuffles through the gangway to the toilet, carrying a small leather shoulder bag. On the way, he passes an Asian couple wearing blue masks. He pauses and turns around. Must have a cold, he thinks. Once in the toilet, he carefully unwraps the turban, winding the fabric around his fingers and pushes it into the bag. He looks at himself in the mirror, yawning like he's just woken up. He ruffs up his untidy blonde hair, pulls off the moustache and puts on a pair of black specks. He waits until he feels the train slowing, then leaves the toilet, pulls a battered aluminium suitcase and a large backpack from the luggage racks and waits to leave the train. At three in the morning, the sound tide of the city is at its lowest ebb. One could almost say it's silent, as silent as it ever gets in big cities. There's a seething emptiness, and occasional details make the space expand even more. A crow cries out suddenly in the park. There's a distant squeal of tyres the soft rumble of an invisible train far away. The building hums gently, an out-of-place tower block in a low-built neighbourhood, a late 1960s slab of modernist concrete in an otherwise 19th-century area. Most of the windows are dark, the balconies holding shadows of plants and furniture. Almost at the top, on the 32nd floor, is the apartment we're interested in. The original walls of the apartment have been removed to create an open plan space. A very large living dining area occupies the balcony side of the flat. It's sparsely furnished, let's say minimally. There are some large prints on the walls. All along one wall are metal shelves full of books, mostly on art and photography. A battered red metal table with matching chairs, which would have looked more at home on a café terrace, is filled with empty glasses, empty bottles of wine and beer, a half-empty bottle of Abba Some breadcrumbs. On the large orange, perhaps vintage mid-century sofa, a man is lying asleep. His white feet stick out from under the duvet. At the head end all we can see is his bleached blonde hair, untidy almost to the point of forming dreadlocks. In the other corner is the kitchen, The fridge hums and the tap drips once every few seconds. It's spotlessly clean, except for a couple of plates in the sink and a pan of food on the stove. From the kitchen, a curtain screens another smaller space with windows looking in the other direction. There's a small wardrobe and a large rail from a shop with clothes hanging on it. On the large bed, Another man lies face down. The covers have been thrown back and we can see that he's wearing dark briefs and a white t-shirt contrasting with the darkness of his skin. He has one white sock on. He has very short hair and he's snoring gently. The mobile on the floor next to the bed starts to ring. (sighs) Carl pushes himself up and looks around, breathing hard. Where is he? Then he sinks back into the bed. In Brussels. In the dark, with a hangover. And his phone is ringing. He picks up. And he realises it's a mistake. His mouth is so dry he can't speak. When he hears the voice, Carl feels a tingling of excitement and at the same time a sinking feeling in his stomach. It's Kim, and when Kim phones, it's usually trouble. Carl gets up and feels his way through the curtains into the kitchen, opening a cupboard for a glass to fill with water, not really listening carefully. Kim is generously older than Carl. But, like most moneyed American women, she's somehow preserved in an ageless bubble of plastic sexiness. Although Kim has something dark and messy about her, which makes it feel more edgy. Karl frowns as he realizes that the smoky voice in his ear is making him hard. The grain in the voice, says Roland Barthes, is the body in the voice. He can hear the inside of her mouth, her throat, her tongue in his ear, and he can imagine what it feels like. They've never fucked. In fact, Carl is lucky to have never slept with any of his gallerists. It's already such a distorted, strange power relationship based on a weird sense of distrust. Some of them had tried. The fat guy in New York City on his knees in the stock room begging to suck his cock, for instance. Carl prefers sleeping with the gallery assistants. At least they're not such permanent fixtures in his career. He's stuck with Kim for a long time. She's trouble, but she's really good. Half of the artist Kim shows make terrible work, and most of the others are wankers. But somehow, she makes it work, and she's been instrumental in getting the recent museum shows together. The phone call is trivial, a confusion about having sent a series of editioned prints instead of the artist's proofs to Madrid so that she doesn't have a copy to sell and there's someone interested. Carl takes a swig of water and listens to Kim blaming Gail, her assistant, who brought everything from the storage. He tries to calm her down a bit. It wasn't Gail who put it there. It probably wasn't labelled properly. Just get her to send the proofs and I'll phone Maria at the museum later to send the others straight back. We've got enough time to sort it out. Anyway, says Carl, why did you have to phone me at this time? It's only 6.30 and I'm just shutting up shop here, says Kim. Yeah, in San Francisco it's 6.30, that means it's... Christ, he thinks, it's three in the morning. Kim then moans on for ten minutes about her financial situation. Yeah, right, thinks Carl to himself and hangs up. Carl downs another glass of water, he's gasping, and goes back to bed. Slowly, the city wakes up. People starting their cars, groups of school kids shouting as they meet each other on the street. Carl wakes up for the second time this morning. As usual, for a moment, he has no idea where he is. After the flash of recognition, of placement, settling back into the bed, he yawns widely, feeling the skin stretch around his jaw. Stretches his neck, shoulders, working down to his hips, and ending with twirling his feet, at least as much as he can with them under the bedclothes. Jog, then a shower, he thinks. Then he remembers Dave. Dave. Carl sticks his left leg out of the bed experimentally. Finds a slipper, a bright yellow Moroccan babouche. Where's the other? He pokes about. Oh yeah, just under the bed. He moves through the flat into the kitchen. An architect had gutted the space and reinstalled everything. Nice, but not much privacy with guests around. Quietly, He finds the coffee tin and the mocha machine, pours the water carefully from the filter jug and spoons the dark grains, inhaling a pre-coffee moment. Once it's on the gas stove, he shuffles over the slightly battered parquet floor to the window. He turns a handle which squeakily pulls up the blind, letting light flood into the room. He hears a groan from the sofa behind him, Carl steps onto the balcony. The air is cold and crisp. For once, it's calm enough to stand out here. From here you can look down into the park. In the summer, it's packed with families and young people hanging out on the grass, having a beer at the bouvette, or taking part in an archery competition. You can see the towers clearly. It's vertical archery. People shoot upwards at targets made out of feathers, like fake birds. Now the park's almost empty, save for a couple of joggers and some gardeners in the distance with leaf blowers. It's been two days now since Dave called. Carl had been in the supermarket downstairs, puzzling over the cheese, when his phone rang. The screen showed an unknown UK number. But something made Carl accept the call. Unusual for him. He's always wary of unknown numbers. Not paranoid. Just wary. He hadn't heard anything from Dave for over a year. But when he'd asked if he could come over and crash for a bit, Carl didn't hesitate. He knew that he owed him one and there was something in Dave's voice which had implied that he needed help. No questions asked. Except that Carl is, of course, incredibly curious. It's almost certainly something incredibly dodgy, something that he'd wished that he hadn't heard about. He's dying to know, but he won't ask yet. He'd been so surprised by Dave's phone call that he'd come back home with random cheese. Mimolette, Morbier, Taleggio, crottin does somewhere or other carl goes back inside to pour his coffee just black he's trying to avoid sugar entirely these days he peers over at the sofa but dave seems to be still totally out of it back on the balcony carl remembers his first encounter with dave someone who would do anything to help you he could be a great friend But you wouldn't want to get too involved, especially not with his business. It had actually been his first day in Sheffield, a week before the art school was about to open. Dad had driven him up in the car filled with boxes, a mattress on the roof. They'd picked up the key from the landlord, unpacked and gone for a fry-up lunch, which was something usually forbidden by Mum, their shared guilty secret. Good job Mum isn't here, said Carl. Yeah, but she really couldn't come, said his dad. What do you mean? Well, you don't notice. It's a big change for you, exciting, being in another city. But for Mum, well, for us, it's a really big change too. You know, she feels worried and a bit sad all at the same time. The house will feel empty. Nice and quiet for a change I was thinking, know what I mean? They laughed. Only last week he'd driven his dad bonkers by playing Cabaret Voltaire's two times 45 at full volume, five times over. Mr. Phone home the next day. It started to rain. Dad had driven off back down to London, and Carl went back to the house. It was a ground-floor flat, a bit expensive maybe, but Carl didn't really want to live with people he didn't know, maybe later, when he'd made some friends. The flat was dark and smelt of damp. Dad hadn't said anything, but he'd wrinkled his nose a bit when he came in. He walked through to the kitchen, which smelt of bleach, but still a little bit of mould. He needed to get himself cleaning stuff. Bleach, soap, rubber gloves. He surprised himself by finding the kettle, tea and mugs in the first box he opened, and looked at the still unopened boxes on the floor. He put the kettle on and he was just rolling a joint on the kitchen table when the doorbell rang. He hesitated for a moment, then placed a piece of newspaper over the sigs, Rizzlers and Stash, and then walked down the dark corridor to open the door. A man, maybe in his early thirties, but Carl couldn't tell, maybe older, stood in the doorway, sheltering from the rain. He was wearing a sharp suit that had messy, bleached hair, no tie. Carl looked at his shoes. Shiny shoes, but no socks. Under his arm was tucked a bottle. All right, said the man. Um, yeah. Hi? I'm Dave, your neighbour. You must have just moved in, right? Dave spoke with an accent Carl couldn't place. Brum, corrupted by Sheffield? Even a touch of Cockney in there? Yeah, um... You're getting wet, said Carl. Can I come in for a mow? Sure, come through. I was just making a cuppa. Don't mind the mess. I'm not really unpacked yet. Dave followed Carl through to the kitchen. I wanted to ask you, said Dave, well, it's a bit strange and you have to believe that I, I really do live next door, but I, I need to break in. What? You locked yourself out? "'My housemates locked me out.' "'What?' laughed Carl. "'On purpose?' "'Yeah. "'I just nipped out to the office to get some whiskey. "'Dave placed the bottle, "'Johnny Walker Black Label, "'on the table as evidence. "'And?' "'Well, when I got back, "'they'd bolted the door from the inside. "'What?' "'Why?' "'They object to me bringing alcohol onto the premises.' "'What, are they born-again Christians or something?' Worse. What's worse than that? Harry Krishna. Jesus, it sounds like home, said Carl. Home? Brixton. Every other house in our street was taken over by some sect or other. But I didn't know the Krishna's didn't like booze. Well, these ones don't. They're always getting at me for something. The worst thing is, they're smackheads too. What? Heroin? That's mad. And they won't let you bring drink onto the premises. No, I've been trying to kick them out for months. Problem is, they pay the rent bang on time. That's the only thing the landlord's interested in. Carl poured two teas. Milk? Sugar? Thanks, mate. Just milk. Dave looked around the kitchen. Is this Aziz's, too? Aziz? Landlord? No. Mine's called Paul. Mr. Paul. Oh, yeah. ''I think I know him. Beautiful daughter he has.'' ''Really?'' ''Yeah.'' ''Not matter. She's a tough negotiator. Better deal with her dad if I were you.'' ''Got some glasses. We could have a dram on the side.'' Carl thought for a moment, opened a cardboard box, dug into another and eventually produced two glasses. He moved the paper aside, exposing his half-finished joint. Dave appeared not to notice. Anyway, um, Carl, I was looking to jump over your back wall and climb up the drainpipe. I'm upstairs, you see. Yeah, sure. Cheers. Then Dave looked at the small plastic bag of grass on the table. It's not Brixton here, he said, but still, if you need anything, seeing that you're new around here, just let me know. What kind of thing any kind of thing. Carl was a little embarrassed about the grass. He didn't know the first thing about his neighbour, but all the same he was curious. The landlord had told him that this was a prime location because you can get girls from there down the corner, booze and weed from the blues across the road and speed from the other end of the street. Ah, that sounds about right, said Dave, but I mean special things. Psychedelics, experimental drugs, really, really good weed, he said, nodding at the back. Anything you want, and stuff that you don't know that you want yet. What? Opium? Guns? asked Carl, who'd just been reading De Quincey and was still trying to figure out quite who he had with him in the kitchen. Opium is... ''Never a good idea, believe me,'' said Dave. ''And I never touch weapons. I'm a dealer yeah, but I'm a dealer in deals.'' ''What do you mean?'' said Carl. ''I'm more interested in the deals than the stuff or the money.'' ''Look,'' said Dave, refilling their glasses. ''In a big town like Sheffield, you have all kinds of scenes. There's the music scene, the bands and their fans.'' which overlaps with the art student scene. Then you've got the Marxists, lefties of different flavours, union activists. Then you've got the anti-apartheid lot and the anarchists. There are university students, they're a breed apart, the skinheads, the Rastas, the Muslim youth, the Irish Republicans, and they're all into drugs. The drugs are in the hands of smugglers from East Yorkshire. Small-time crooks from here. Mafias of uh, different racial backgrounds. Runners over from Manchester. The way I see it, they're all interesting people. If you deal, like I do, not wanting to make a lot of cash, but just, you know, to follow the products where they go, you get to meet all kinds of interesting types. I get into scenes you wouldn't believe. Try me, said Carl already wondering whether he could believe Dave about anything. Alright, a couple of weeks ago I got a call from a contact, asking if I had some acid. He said he could come and get it, but that I might like to take it round myself, Park Hill Flats. Well, those flats, you never know what you might come across. It's like a city within the city, and there's some tough dealers hanging about who once took a dislike to me, so I was a bit, you know, suspicious this mate, he says Dave, you will thank me honest you have to check these guys out so I go around there and of course, it's on the top 13th floor, lift not working as you walk up the stairs they get more and more smelly it's like the longest, tallest public bog ever, but I hold my breath and carry on, it was quite a bit of money too, which I could do with anyway, I get to this shabby door, which looks like it's been kicked in ten times already Piece of hardboard instead of glass, and I knock. The door swings open, and there's this incredible woman, done up like something out of the 18th century, with a wig and enormous knockers. Yes, she says, and I realize she's a bloke, like a drag queen. I can hear music, opera in the background. So I tell her what I'm doing there, and she says, Come through. And then we go through into what's normally the kitchen. And it was really like something else. They'd knocked down a wall to open up this huge space and put old cinema seats in and a stage, a big stereo system. Everything's painted kind of purply red and there are these characters, men and women. Maybe they were all blokes. It was difficult to tell, all dressed up, singing along with Bloody Verdi or something. I thought they were going to indoctrinate me, give me a wig but they just poured me a glass of wine. We did the deal. They even gave me a tip, very sweet. Then, when she showed me out, she says, forget you ever saw this, okay, and she gave me a kiss on the cheek. Stuff like that. That's what you can run into. Does this other guy over in Crooks. Collects anything, as long as it's got a swastika on it. Keeps going on about how his old man fought the Nazis to let you know he's not one himself. Wow, said Carl. You sound like an anthropologist, really. Yeah, that's me. Anarchist anthropology. I did study it for a term, eons ago. But mostly I did chemistry. Hmm, I guess that's useful. Yeah, I sure know my way around molecules. And molecules know their way around me. But I don't cook the stuff up myself. I shouldn't be telling you all this, though. You might be a copper. Why do you say that? Well, anybody could be a cop. But let's not get paranoid. Dave drained his glass. I need to get into my flat. OK, I'll give you a leg up. Thanks, Carl. You're a hero. Let me take you out for a drink. I'll show you around a bit. Mm, Busy tomorrow night? Day after's better, said Carl, thinking already that he needed to put the brakes on, even though Dave seemed so interesting. OK. Uh, I'll come round about 8.30. Cool. See you then. And Dave climbed up the drainpipe, as if he'd done it many times before.